Kevin's been through the ringer uh, in a number of ways, but he left government, uh, the Government Accountability Board on June 29th to a well-deserved retirement. <clears throat> he was there for 37 years, and I thought I had been in my place for 22, that was a long time. And he had been administering and enforcing the laws in Wisconsin, doing a good job. And so I think it's appropriate to start by saying, as many of you wonder how people get into their jobs, how'd you get into this business? Well, I started when I was 12. <laughs> I just gave up, great, gave, gave up the paper out um, for this. Um, you know, I'm a Madison man. Um, I grew up in Madison, it's a great town. And um, I was very fortunate with a great university. The farm my dad grew up on is on the other side of Lake Mendota. On Kennedy Drive, and so the roots are very deep for Wisconsin, and so you develop a real passion for this. Um, after law school, I was fortunate enough to take a job uh, as an assistant district attorney in a, uh, Washington County. Uh, beautiful place, but not Madison. Uh, small county, uh, the glacier carved out some undulating, lush landscape, but uh, as soon as I got the chance to come back to Madison and join private practice, I went in practice with a former legislator, uh, a one-term legislator, and that was introduced to campaign finance law. Um, because as a former legislator, he was failing to find those campaign finance reports. So that was my first introduction to the state elections board. Uh, a year later, I took a civil service exam and uh, was offered the job to, uh, as staff counsel for the Wisconsin law. Uh, I found out after I was there that I was their fourth choice. I think the other three <laughs> saw something that I should have seen. <laughs> um, but that's really how I got it. Fourth choice, huh? Fourth. I always like my first round draft pick. <laughs> so Kevin's been called a lot of names, but some of the names that, that uh, he's called have actually been of the good persuasion. He's been called the guarantor of accountability and transparency of Wisconsin government, the guardian of Wisconsin citizens' right to vote. So how did you, you know, become the person who was described in those glowing terms. That sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds good, but I vote that for you. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I'd rather focus on where, where Wisconsin came from first, because you know, former election officials don't go away, they just don't count anymore. So let's talk about the law. Okay. Sounds um, good. So, um, you know, Wisconsin had always had a reputation uh, for being uh, an innovator uh, in the areas of campaign finance uh, and elections and lobbying. And uh, but most changes come about through scandal or human greed. And uh, in the 1850s, uh, Wisconsin was controlled by the lumber barons, uh, the railroad nobles. And they, uh, in 1858, our governor and a number of legislators were caught taking bribes. That was shortly before your time? Uh, right. <laughs> and like any good scandal, nobody likes to be shamed. This is a cartoon from Harper's Weekly in 1858, um, where they're selling legislators and the guy's really looking for a Wisconsin governor to purchase. Um, this led, in 1858, to the first lobby law adopted by Wisconsin required uh, disclosure. Uh, by 1895, uh, we had a Corrupt Practices Act uh, in place. Corporate contributions were banned in 1905. We had full campaign finance disclosure in 1911. 
as part of our progressive uh, method. Um, I leave a picture here at the Capitol just so you get a, a feel for uh, where all of this change took place. Uh, that building's been in place since the early 1900s. Um, but the laws that were enacted back in 1911 were in place for, for a long time, but they really became sort of an institutionalized thing. That means that uh, they were sort of honored through lip service, not a lot of enforcement. People just accepted it. And by the 1970s with Watergate, um, we re-examined our campaign finance laws. We were blessed to have, as our revenue secretary uh, for Governor Lucy, David Adam. Many of you may have heard of David Adam. He was a leading uh, political scientist scholar who just passed away. Um, and he wrote a special report that served as, a, as sort of the framework for Wisconsin's campaign finance disclosure. Uh, and in 1974, the legislature took campaign finance and elections, put it into a bipartisan board, similar to what other states were doing around that time. Um, right around the beginning of COVID. Um, right, very much around the beginning of COVID. And uh, as, as a result, we had a very comprehensive uh, law with strict spending limits and disclosure limits. But uh, following Buckley v. Vallejo, we had to tweak it a little bit. I mean, if you call it taking spending limits out of your legislation, tweaking something. Um, but um, again, Wisconsin was there. And then you know, just a couple years later, in 78, they uh, developed a uh, comprehensive legislative and statewide public financing that lasted until 2011, or what I like to refer to as the troubles. Which will get you. Kennedy and Sullivan are talking about the troubles. And what followed after 78 really, uh, and most of you know this from your experience, you know, a whole series of court decisions at the state and federal level that really eviscerated uh, a lot of the disclosure and campaign finance requirements, limiting the scope of regulation that, uh, uh, that you have. Um, now you get into 78, we have all these changes coming along, and we go along for a few years, and you become the director of the campaign finance and the election portion, correct? That's right. And there's a separate ethics board. That's right. And then in 2007, that all changes. Uh, that's right. Um, I, I use this picture because they created a new watchdog agency in 2007. Um, and you walk into my former office, you would see the Capitol uh, from three blocks away. And so I've always liked that picture. I arranged my desk so that people walk in and saw the Capitol and I saw the people coming in. Uh, this picture is important for uh, uh, future uh, discussions in the down the road here. But, um, you know, there was a scandal, again. Uh, a jilted lover uh, managed to catch the ear and pen of a local writer. And uh, we call it the, the caucus scandal because what was documented was how much activity in the late 90s, probably long before that, uh, and early 2000s, was going into legislative activity. It was uh, really doing campaign activity at state time. Uh, and this uh, person was able to provide all the documents that she was working on uh, were while she was running the state salary. Um, that was probably the instigator for the creation of the Government Accountability Board. But there was also um, a growing dissatisfaction with how the elections board worked. It was a bipartisan agency, but the decisions tended to be more partisan. The staff tended to get overruled 
really didn't want to ruffle a lot of feathers, so there was a sense we needed to change the environment. Um, but another factor was what I call one-stop shopping. It was not unusual for me to get a phone call asking advice, hey, I've got a fundraiser going on, and we want some campaign finance advice, and I'd have to sign off with that you need to talk to the ethics board about conflict of interest or lobbying implications. You know, we had the same issue. We have to we keep that little caveat at the end a lot. I'm sure a lot of you have to do that at separate agencies. So the one-stop shopping idea was created in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was really something that was in the background, and they, as much as they talk about the caucus scandal being the instigator, that's really what the regulated community wanted, was not to have to call around and go to one place. So now it's 2007, the boards merged, and you end up as the director. That's right. And you want to talk about how that happened, or is that a state secret? It's not a state secret. I mean, they, they, they did a national search. They ended up with three finalists from Wisconsin, actually five finalists from Wisconsin. It's and a surprise, was, isn't it? Uh, and I was fortunate enough to uh, to be chosen, but um, you know, it was a unique opportunity. And uh, under the old, under the structure, I wasn't going to have a job because everybody else, uh, all the staff transferred over, but the, the two directors, and then you, you know, Roth Judd was my counterpart to the ethics board, and after Coburn as well. And so now you start this new agency, you know, the combined agency. And what do you have for challenges right off the bat? Well. You know, I think, first of all, you look at the strengths that the, that the agency brought. Uh, you know, this was an independent state agency with a nonpartisan board. The old elections board was half Republican, half Democrat. Then the governor had an appointee that sort of tipped the balance. Half Republican, half Democrat? Ian, does that sound familiar? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a foreshadowing of what's to come. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, the beauty was that the they had to have former judges serve on this board. And in Wisconsin, we elect our judges that are nonpartisan uh, ballot. Uh, but these folks were nominated by city court of appeals judges, not by legislative leaders, not by uh, political party folks. And the governor appointed from a list of people uh, for that. Um, what they brought to this were not only a, a separation from, from political uh, connections that were required to not have made any campaign contributions for a period of time before they took office, not be a member of a political party. Um, but they were trained decision makers. And these are the folks that handled all the sticky stuff uh, in dispute resolution, divorces, uh, sentencing criminals. Uh, so they, they were trained decision makers. That really brought, I think, uh, a real strong element that really didn't exist despite the high quality of some of the people I worked for with the state election. So your boys running pretty well, you think. Everything's going along well. You've got trained decision makers. They're, they're probably listening to the staff to some extent, right? I hope. Oh, yeah. Okay. But now, all of a sudden, there's the demise of the DAB. Well, you know, there were some very interesting challenges. When the agency took over, it had to review every single formal opinion or administrative rule that they place um, and adopt and adopt or reaffirm those. Um, and at the time, the Democrats controlled the governors in both houses in 2009, 2010, when we were just getting up and running. And they sort of changed the fact that they really couldn't influence our decision making. And there were more than a handful of uh, come to Jesus meetings where uh, board members or uh, top staff were summoned to talk to legislative leaders to hear their dissatisfaction with 
how we would proceed uh, on this. It didn't change how we approach things. You know, my response tended to be, we're going to apply the law that you've written. You have a problem with the decisions, take a look at the underlying law. That might sound familiar with the people up there. Yeah. <laughs> anybody ever come to Jesus meeting with legislators? Well, I'd like to say that in 2011, all was right before. On February 6th of 2011, the Green Bay Packers were Super Bowl champions. Uh, I, don't Lombardi, remember, I don't remember that. The Lombardi Trophy was back where it belonged. I still don't remember that. <laughs> but a few days later, uh, Governor Walker introduced his budget repair bill. One of the key elements was uh, stripping out the rights of public employees to collectively bargain. And that really led to some uh, tumultuous times. You want to see some grassroots lobbying? This is the Capitol in uh, February and March of 2011. Uh, up to 100,000 people on weekends surrounding the Capitol. Uh, this is real grassroots lobbying. What's the average temperature in February and March? <laughs> <laughs> uh, about what it is now. Pushing zero uh, on this. And not only on the outside of the capital, but on the inside of the capital as well. Um, in fairness to uh, legislative staff and Supreme Court staff, uh, it was a living hell to be working in the capital at that time. Um, but it was an unprecedented attempt, and it spurred a lot of activity. Um, we had thousands of complaints about this. Uh, our Democratic uh, senators left the state to try and prevent a vote on this legislation. We were getting requests for, you know, this, was the governor's action illegal? Was the Democratic senators actually? We were really in force of uh, unprecedented things. There were 16 state senators, eight Republicans, eight Democrats, who were eligible for recall, and recall petitions were started against each of them. Um, eventually, recall petitions were filed against nine of those 16, uh, six. Republicans to be Democrats. Uh, in the midst of this, we had a Supreme Court race where the incumbent, former Republican Speaker of the Assembly, was seen as sort of the surrogate for all of the activity. Uh, that race ended up being very close. We had a statewide recount. You could not imagine all of the work that's coming into place February, March, April, May of 2011 on this new agency that has to deal with all of this activity. And of course, the decisions aren't. aren't Always welcome. So what we end up with is uh, some very dissatisfied customers. We get sued ten times every time the court upholds our decisions. Do they use the words in his official capacity when you get sued? Those are important words in my world. Uh, in, in that in that case, they were. The most recent case, they're not. <laughs> that's that's another issue. Um, and then we ramp up for the statewide recall. Um, because after the governor's been in for a year, he's subject to recall. We get sued again. We eventually prevail uh, on that. And we end up in 2012 with a statewide recall election. We had to go through 2 million signatures and review those. Um, and they only needed 600,000 to, to uh, call the governor, uh, 600,000 to the lieutenant governor. And they had a close to a million for each of them uh, on the recalls. But it was, you cannot replicate that period of time. Um, and so, obviously, we were not making a lot of friends, but I think we, uh, as far as the people who were regulated, but the people we were serving, I think we conveyed a real sense of confidence. 
But I will say this, the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, the final straw probably was when uh, in the midst of this, the Milwaukee County District Attorney uh, invited us to join uh, their John Doe investigations. And uh, while I can't talk a whole lot about some of the details there, um, there are some public documents that I want to make sure that you see. Um, this is just a, some more of the tumultuousness and the recall activity. But the Guardian uh, on September 14th. Not our Guardian. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Posted a lot of some very good documents here if you want to see some of the detail that went on on this. In addition, in one of the many lawsuits um, that took place, uh, this is a site to a Wisconsin case where there are, again, several thousand documents that were released from this investigation. What those documents really show, uh, you know, was the governor and public officials uh, groveling rich and powerful men for political support for their agenda. And I guess one of the comparisons I would make is, it might be a bit unfair to some folks, but uh, you know, in big cities we have poor people, very unfortunate souls, that we run across even down in the country, for example, you know, begging for food, sleeping in the street. What these documents show is the same kind of behavior of public officials begging for money and support, acting the same way. I don't know what that says about our society that, um, you know, that we've reduced not only uh, some very, uh, the most vulnerable people to that situation, but the people who make our decisions are put in that role of becoming uh, uh, suffocating psychopaths, just really, demeaning themselves and looking for that kind of money. We're not looking for maximum individual contributions here, right? We're talking serious numbers. We're talking, you know, there, there were millions and millions of dollars at stake in this. And as I said, what you'll see, look at these documents, is, is a graphic description of this. I think the Guardian does a great job with their website. That I would encourage you to get on it and, and look at that. Uh, because it really leads you into many of the documents uh, that were involved in this. And, you know, what's telling is that like our treatment of the people we see in the streets, um, the public tends not to pay attention to solve the problem uh, of the, going after the political folks. So when we get through this, you're doing the investigation, it suits all over the place, trying to deconstruct the investigation, it takes a political turn, and the PAB is no more. Well, you know, um, we, we, we steered successfully through 2014, but the bad feelings were still there. There were many lawsuits related to the investigation going on, and it was very clear that the legislature wanted to change the problem, fix the problem. And they fixed the problem by? Well, it took them a while. It took them until October of 2015, when all of a sudden they finally created some legislation where they were going to split the agency into two commissions. Uh, in those commissions, and this is where I, um, where I think there's evidence that this is legislative control that drives it. The two commissions are equally divided, little questions there, between Republicans and Democrats. Um, but four of them are directly appointed, not by the governor, but by the legislative leaders. And the other two on those commissions come from lists given by the legislative leaders to the governor. Uh, so that's the structure that's been in place. 
since June 30th of this year uh, on this. But you know, I think the, the Government Accountability Board you know, left behind a shining example of how things can be done. And if you take a look at what we navigated from 2011 through 2016, uh, the recalls, the recount, advice, the threats, the harassments, the reprisals that came from the people we regulated, but the confidence that we had from the public. It was not unusual for someone to stop me on the streets and say, you know, I didn't know what was going on in 2011. I'd see you on TV, and I felt good that it was going to work out. And what this agency did was successfully navigate that, and it's really a good measure for the Now you're retired. Well, I, I like to say that uh, I left public service. Um, on your own terms? I'm like, no. Kind of, sort of. Uh, I wrote it out to the end. Um, I'm too, too young to retire when I started to walk. Uh, but, uh, but you can always go back to the table. That's right. Um, I understand we're going to have some questions. We have time for questions. Yes? If anybody wants to, we have 10. Now let me give you this. I couldn't say 10. I had to try to translate it. But to Mike's credit, he was able to count. <laughs> but there are a couple people walking around with microphones. Uh, this is your chance to grill the other one. While you're doing that, let me just show you two editorial cartoons that reflect the problem that we were engaged with. You know, we had people who wanted to help us count those recall signatures. Uh, you know, very dedicated folks. Uh, but it wasn't just from the people who were doing the recalls. People who want us to stop them as well. So um, we, we got some very, very colorful flavors. The red room. Hey, Kevin, yeah, we're ready. Um, I'll start it off with a, with a question about uh, the storm clouds. So, for, for many of us who were following your story, it seemed like the storm clouds were forming for quite a while. What's it like being in the epicenter of that situation where you know something bad is happening and you're trying to do everything you can to uh, uh, avoid that downpour? Well, you know, when you can't control the weather, um, you can pull out an umbrella, um, although it can get swept out of your hands very quickly. Uh, you know, I did what I think the people in this room do who are administrators, um, and that is you keep your head down, you focus on what your job is, and that's what you do. And that was the message that we tried to share with the staff on this. Um, we, the whole concept of uh, public employee bargaining rights was affecting the very people in my office as well. Um, and so it was, we were going to be touched by this, but we had to remind ourselves we were the professionals, and that was one of the strengths that the agency had. It had a very competent and a very professional staff, uh, and it, it carried itself well. And again, I think its true measure of success was I would not put bipartisan board or a um, Secretary of State to steer successfully through what we went through in 2011 and 2012 with the recalls and the refunds. Question? Got one over here. Hi, I'm Frank Daly from the Nebraska Accountability Disclosure Commission. Have you ever met him before? I have. I show up at that five o'clock thing on Tuesday once. <laughs> But we also came to that little gap when I had when I got kicked to the curb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Madison in June is a very, very nice place. But first a comment. First of all, 
Kevin, I want to compliment you on the integrity that you've shown and you've shown and the way you handle all these crises. And it was clear that you had an incredible staff because everything you hear about the way that the Government Accountability Board functioned during that time. Uh, while there was a lot of criticism, it wasn't criticism based upon anything real. It was criticism based upon perception. But when you look at the results, you went through a tumultuous time, you did your job, and the outcome was exactly what was called for uh, within the confines of your job. So congratulations on all of that. Uh, you're kind of an example to us. But there really is a question in there, and the question is, tell us about life after state government, because some of us find ourselves in the same position. Well, you, you find yourself sitting in front of a couple hundred people and getting grilled about your past. Um, oh, and then get grilled COVID conferences, too. I was thinking of the lawsuits. Because um, they, they still continue. You know, it's... I, I, this is one of the experiences I had. I would talk to legislators after they left public service, and they would tell me they did not realize how good life was once they got outside the shadow of the Capitol. And there is so much to life. There's so much uh, we bring to our daily jobs, certain commitment, that you have to look beyond that. I think, you know, I would come to Coley conferences to get my batteries recharged. Uh, not just by my fellow administrators, but by the people we serve, you know, because in this audience we don't have just uh, government folks. We've got uh, people who are regulated. Uh, we've got uh, good government groups. Uh, and all of you contribute to that. And while you treasure that, there's so much that you can do outside of life. Uh, my family uh, is getting more pictures of me uh, with them instead of on Facebook. That's always a good sign. Um, but again, it's, you get the time to, to do some things, and that's what's important. I have one here. Is there is there anything that you would have done differently looking back? I mean, can you point to one thing that, that was like, I don't know, one, like, because I, I don't understand, I guess, the fact that the agency was just, you know, destroyed. <laughs> but I mean, is there anything you would have done differently? You know, there's not much I would have done differently. I can think of things on the investigation that I would have done differently that might have developed some more documentation, but it didn't have an impact. In fact, I tell people, I don't regret that the board followed the staff recommendation, authorized an investigation, because quite frankly, had they abdicated their decision and not done that, they truly should have been on the scrap heap of history for not going where the law was at the time. We, and we had a court of appeals decision from 1997. We had two formal opinions from the two agencies that said, you know, this is how this behavior is regulated. This is how we give the advice. You know in the give and take that things can change, but this is the advice we were giving. So for us not to when we're confronted with credible evidence of a violation of the law by high-ranking public officials uh, to try and subvert the disclosure of, of political activity, you have to go forward with that. Had we not done that, I would have been basically ashamed to be sitting here. Uh, and I'm proud of my board for that. Um, Paul Ryan, Common Cause. Kevin, first I want to echo uh, just thanks to you for decades of public service. 
And my question relates to that. I've been doing work in this field for about 20 years, and I've often been asked by folks all over the country, what should an enforcement agency look like? And I, for many years, pointed to the Government Accountability Board, not only because of the agency structure, but because of your leadership of that agency. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about the best attributes of the Government Accountability Board, structure of the Government Accountability Board, and maybe if there are any weaknesses of it. If you were building an enforcement agency from scratch, how closely would it resemble the Government Accountability Board? What might you tweak um, so that it would be a little bit different? Um, and I've given that some thought. That's a good, that's a, thank you for that question. It's very good. Um, I mean, we were unique in Wisconsin in that we had a nonpartisan judiciary. So when they limited the pool of board members to former judges, um, there was the problem there was you had a bunch of old white guys. We had one woman who also had the one minority member of the board, people who served. Um, and that we like to broaden it. Having people who were removed from politics by not being nominated by the political powers that be. Um, the governor has to make the appointment in, in an executive branch agency. Uh, you're not going to get away from that. But by providing him with a pool of individuals that were selected on their merits as trained decision makers. And I don't think he had to limit it to judges. That would be the, the main change I would have. Keep them divorced from politics by you know one or two years of no campaign contributions, uh, not being a member of a political party, and finding a nominating committee uh, that is not tied to the legislative leaders, uh, the political party chairs, which is what where my former board came from uh, on that. I mean, I, I recognize there's always this sense of a bipartisan tension, but uh, you know it's a recipe that uh, has failed at the national level and it's take some more time to just see how it plays out in Wisconsin, but I've seen it in other states where it just doesn't work. Um, we had a self-sufficient budget for investigation. Um, and I think that was important. Probably the thing that I would change that was the biggest and was the real challenge for me and led to a lot of the lawsuits was that the legislature put a veil of secrecy over our actions. All of the complaints that were filed with us were secret. All of the deliberations on those complaints were secret until a decision was made to bring an enforcement action or refer a matter to a DA, you had no idea what was going on. Under the old elections board, we had those discussions out in the open. Um, and the benefit was, even though you had you know, the speaker of the assembly's nominee, the governor's appointee on the board, and you knew where the coming from, the discussion was public. So I think you want to have, from a transparency standpoint, as much information about the complaints the deliberations as public as possible. Um, it's a challenge when you conduct an investigation, I know, but that transparency, um, that was one of the drawbacks for us. We have time for one last question. Uh, Brian McKell from Philadelphia. When, when it became apparent that there was going to be legislation uh, to dissolve the board, did you have an opportunity to engage in the legislative process in an attempt to defend it? And you know, what what were those readings like? And you know, you know how, what sort of arguments did you make? And was there any actual response from legislators in that that time? Well, October was a great month of drama. I mean, the legislature had been talking since the 
first thing they said after the 2014 election is on our agenda we're going to fix the problem of the GAB. And when I went in for budget talks um, in early 2015, um, they were talking, we're going to do something. But they, they could not come up with an idea, so they came up with some agreement, which came up in the middle of October of 2015, and it was rushed to judgment. They held a joint public hearing. So, I mean, while we knew it was coming, you know, your best preparation is sort of laying out what did you accomplish. When we were confronted at the hearing, it was a very interesting hearing where uh, both the Senate and Assembly Committee were there, and all of the Republicans had their script. And some of them were going to talk to us about, uh, you know, tell us about this investigation. Tell us why you didn't use state email accounts to conduct your investigation. They had everything lined up uh, through that uh, with, with talking points. Um, they start off with a recitation of all of the problems that they thought were a problem. Um, we then came back and we could rebut every single one of those uh, issues. In other words, criticisms going back to how we handled the recalls. Point out the report decisions backing up those decisions. Um, but it was, you know, it was, for all practical purposes, a well-orchestrated move because Thursday in October, it's introduced, the hearings on Tuesday, the assembly votes on Wednesday, or the following week, uh, then it gets kicked over to the Senate. And there's a little bit of uh, concern in the Senate, but the governor has this signed before Christmas of 2015. Um, I'm told that's the end of this. I want to show you that if you stepped into my office today, what was my office? A hotel has now been built blocking the view of the Capitol. It's a rendering of the hotel. At the time I left, it was just burgers. Um, but now the hotel is actually in place, um, not open for business. So that view of the Capitol that people would see when they come in, I think that's emblematic of, of, of where we've been. I want to thank Kevin uh, for joining us, being so candid, telling us everything that happened in Wisconsin sharing his experiences. I want to thank you for all of your time listening.